Amen. And so, you know, uh, I think the thing that we really have to realize with as crazy as the world has become, all right, God knows what's happening in Portland before it ever happened. God knows what's happening in Minneapolis, in Columbus, in Washington, D.C. God knows what's happening around the world, but it doesn't limit God and it does not limit his power to move amongst his people. And uh, so to this morning, I want to bring you a message entitled, The Value of a Lost Soul, and I'm taking my text from Luke chapter 19. And <clears throat> to me, it is, uh, it is very important that as we approach the crusade, now, God does great miracles. And in these meetings, oftentimes, you'll see miracles of healing and spectacular signs and wonders. But the greatest miracle that you will ever witness is somebody being baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost. Uh, you know, I, I come here today and I don't see Lazarus. He was raised from the dead. Many think that was the greatest miracle in the New Testament church, but you know, he died along the way and he's in a grave again. Any of those types of miracles, they're for time, not for eternity. But when a person is born again, that's for eternity. That actually counts not just for time, but also for eternity. And in Luke chapter 19 now, this is the account of uh, Zacchaeus coming to the Lord. And Jesus said to him, to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, I, I think every church, and I'm, you know, I'm sure that the spring church that you have, uh, a mission statement, Parkway has a mission statement, everybody has a mission statement, but this is Jesus's mission statement. He said, you know, I have come to seek and to save the lost. He healed people, he fed people, he delivered people, he raised people from the dead, uh, he ministered in many different ways, but every activity, every miracle was geared towards the winning of souls. And we need to consider that as we approach this crusade. The crusade will only be a success if you're ready for the crusade. If you think that you're gonna just, you know, go to church as normal the next month and then go downtown and uh, be there for a crusade and great things will happen, we'll probably be disappointed. But the preparation work already needs to be taking place. You need to be witnessing to, to people. You need to be preparing them for uh, what they will uh, most likely experience in a Pentecostal service and you need to provide for their transportation to get them down there. And really, even uh, equally as important is once they leave that building, if they're baptized filled with the Holy Ghost, if they have interest, then you need to disciple that person. You need to be bringing them into the, into the household of God. I remember uh, in Nigeria, we had a, uh, a crusade, and it was one of those years where uh, at that time, they were foreign missions, now global missions, but they had raised uh, 
millions of dollars for crusades around the world. So they dispatched money to every country for a crusade. Now, we had one in Nigeria, but we really were not big enough, well prepared enough to do a crusade to have a lasting impact. But, you know, we put the tent up and over uh, 3,000 people attended and about 350 were baptized, uh, most of them filled with the Holy Ghost. But the closest church to the crusade ground was a church that seated about 20 people. So, you know, those 350 people, what happened after that crusade, you know, who knows? They, you know, went here, there, and everywhere. But the Great Commission includes really, really three aspects. First, we're supposed to go get them, all right? Then we're supposed to teach them. And then we're supposed to uh, disciple them. And then we're supposed to send them. And that's the continuous loop in the New Testament church, that we go, we teach, we disciple, and then we send. Everybody should be a soul winner. And um, as we get into this message, I'll just share one story. I know there's some people here that think, oh, I can't win a soul. I'm, trust me, everybody can win a soul. Everybody can win a soul. Everybody in here knows somebody that's lost. You can win a soul. Uh, we had come home from Nigeria one time, and I'm really not sure why we were home, if it was deputation or whatever. We were at Parkway, and, you know, Parkway is a very uh, large church. It'll seat 1,200, and uh, you know how in church you all have your seat. You know, sister, I knew you'd be sitting behind me. Praise the Lord. She'd be praying for me. Amen. Love that, sister. And, uh, and so I know when I come, you know, God forbid, don't sit in that chair. Praise the Lord. That's where she sits. Amen. And so I always sat over on this side of the church, and uh, brother and sister Tamil sat over here, Bishop Frank Tamil and Angeline Tamil, and Grandma Tamil uh, was, or Grandma Vincer always sat uh, usually right behind him. Well, Grandma Vincer, <clears throat> on this particular time we were home, we had a, a, a great service, and at the end of the service, the altar call was made. Now, she's about 80, you know, that platform's about 80 feet across. And so, I, you know, I'm in my chair over there. She's way over here. And when the service is over, she's tottering all the way across. And, you know, she's turning, and I realize she's coming for me. And when she got to me, she said, uh, Brother McLean, she said, I... Um, two women have asked me to teach them a Bible study, and Grandma Vincer taught many, many Bible studies. Many people were baptized because of her. She was the one that found the property where the church sits. She was the one that God spoke to, and she was a very godly woman. But she said, you know, these two women asked me to teach them a Bible study, and she goes, I'm 100 years old. She said, isn't there anybody else in this church that can teach a Bible study? And then she said, you know, and this is why she was over there, will you teach him a Bible study? Well, how could I tell Grandma Vincer no? But, you know, we were going back to the field. I mean, I wasn't going to be staying there. And, but I told her I would do, and whatever, a week passed, and uh, church was over, and here comes Grandma Vincer again. She, you know, I mean, she is 100 years old. And she gets to me, and she said, Jerry, she said, when I got home, 
She said, I was so convicted that I asked you to teach that Bible study. She said, am I too old to do something for God? She said, I'll teach my own Bible study. And she taught those two women, both of them baptized in Jesus' name, both of them filled with the Holy Ghost. Amen. Anybody can win a soul. But this morning, talking about the mission of Jesus, uh, Jesus clearly was interested in soul winning. Everything he did was with the purpose that he would lead somebody to God. Those miracles were not to show how powerful and, and whatever that he was, but they were to bring people to an understanding of Christ. And you notice that when he did a miracle, there was always a lesson that went with it that touched the soul, touched the heart of a person. Now, in Luke chapter 3, there are three parables. Uh, all of us that have been around for any amount of time, we know that there is the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the lost son. And uh, in these uh, parables, uh, we, we all understand that they are talking about, uh, you know, we're really, he's really not caring too much about a lost sheep or a lost coin, but he is, the Lord does care about a lost soul. And so the, the lamb, the coin, and the boy all represent lost souls, and he's trying to make a point. Now, and that's how we usually preach it, but I believe that, you know, there's a little bit more to it than, you know, just simply, you know, that, that lamb represents the lost soul and so forth. Uh, when you look at the parable of the lost sheep, now here's a man that has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray. One of them is missing. Now, I'm not a farmer, and, you know, I don't measure my wealth in sheep, but to me, if I had a hundred and one went missing, big deal. Uh, but to the shepherd, it meant a very big deal because it was his pocketbook. It was what he worked for. It was his livelihood. It represented his wealth. And so the Bible tells us that that shepherd was willing to leave the 99 and go and hunt and find and seek that one lost sheep. And after a great deal of effort, he finds the lost sheep, brings it back to the flock, and everybody rejoices. Now, the woman... She has 10 coins. Now, the Bible, uh, most Bible scholars believe really that those 10 coins represented uh, either 10 days wages or uh, most likely a woman's dowry. It was not uncommon for a woman in that day. And, and so we have an idea that this was a very poor woman, a peasant woman, and she got 10 coins for her dowry and they would attach it somehow to a string or a rope and hang it around their neck. It was ornamental. It was a sign that, you know, she was loved, she was betrothed, she was going to get married, and she loses the coin. She loses one of the coins. So she spares no effort to find that lost coin. Uh, even during the day to, you know, light a lamp, you know, to use oil instead of at night, you know, she you know, got a lamp out, she's looking for that lost coin, she's sweeping everything, I mean, she's going to do whatever she can, because 
in her mind, you know, this is her dowry. She goes, if, if I've lost part of the dowry, what will people think? What will people think of me? They'll think I'm a foolish woman, a careless woman, one not even worthy to get married. So she's frantically searching for that, trying to save herself embarrassment and humiliation. Now, when we get to the third parable, there is a lost son. This boy uh, comes to his father, asks his father for his inheritance, and um, the father uh, relented and gave him his inheritance. Um, I think the boy thought he was very rich, but actually he had just lost a lot. When he was with his father, he had everything. Now he only had half of it. But anyway, he leaves, and we know that he squanders uh, everything that he has, um, like probably most young people would, get a big inheritance, spend it all, and find yourself in desperate situation. Uh, but when we look at these parables, uh, it seemed like the young man had no value. Nobody went looking for the young man. Now, they searched for the, la the lamb, the lost sheep. They searched for the coin. And it kind of tells us how we think as humans. You know, the man that lost his sheep, you know, for him, it was his pocketbook. It was his wealth. You hit somebody where their money is, they're very concerned. So he was going to take any extraordinary measures necessary to find and recover his money. The lady, she was going to do everything necessary to preserve her reputation. She cared about what people thought. I mean, one coin, maybe even if it was a day's pay, I mean, you could survive that. But in her, her case, she felt, no, I, I have to find that coin because what will people think of me? So you have one man that's worried about his money. You have a woman that's worried about her reputation, but nobody cares about the child. Nobody cares about the son. Now, Jesus did not primarily come to seek and restore your wealth and your reputation. He came to save your soul. And souls matter to Jesus more than possessions or reputation matter to him. Uh, in fact, Jesus said, uh, you know, the birds of the air, they have a nest to live in. Foxes have a hole to live in, but I don't even have a home. And you notice in his ministry, he is going from place to place. He is dependent upon other people to house him and to take care of him. And so it is ironic that what was the most valuable treasure in those three parables was basically ignored. And I wonder today if we get so busy with our own lives that we forget about our neighbor who is not saved. We forget about relatives in our own family that are not saved. Well, I've witnessed to him before, but that, well, you need to probably witness again and again. Uh, in my own testimony, I can say that the young man that first talked to me about the Lord, it took four years. It took four years, but he never stopped. He wasn't rude. He wasn't overly aggressive, but periodically he would come again, and he would continue to invite me for church, to church, and I thank God for that. Now, in Luke chapter 12, there is another parable, and this parable is about a rich fool, and this one I'll actually read in chapter 12, uh, verse 16. Jesus says, Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, 
the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take, eat, eat, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you're a fool. And this night, your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have laid up in your barns, in your bank account, wherever, then who will they belong to? Now, when you look at this parable, again, Jesus is addressing the topic of a lost soul. Now, this young man expected to live a long time. Uh, if he didn't expect to live a long time, there'd be no need to build barns to house his treasures. He'd have been out spending his treasures. His problem was unlike most of ours. His was not a problem of lack. His was a problem of abundance. He had so much, he didn't know what to do, it, do with it. He was perplexed by his own success, not his failures. He had a management problem. What will I do with all of my money? What will I do with all of my wealth? And his answer was to somehow secure that earthly treasure so nobody else could get it, but it would be at his disposal whenever he wanted it. Uh, but when we read this account, what's clearly absent here is there is no process by this man uh, where he seeks counsel, where he prays, where he asks God, what should I do? God is entirely left out of this equation. He only considered himself. And all he could look forward to in his mind was a very happy future where he could eat, drink, and be merry. But then the Lord came, and the Lord with a thundering voice spoke to him and said, Thou fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Now, I can imagine when he heard that voice. Now, this wasn't the voice of a man. This is the voice of God that he shuddered. He was horrified. And now I'm sure that he got on his knees and he found a place to pray. That he, in this desperate state, but it was too late. Judgment had already been pronounced on him. I'm sure that, you know, as he prayed, and uh, many of us have been in situations that are very dire, and we are willing to bargain with God, we're willing to promise God what we'll do, whatever, to try and you know, manipulate God to move on our behalf. I'm sure all of that took place, but as the night wears on, he's struggling for his breath, he gasps his last breath of air, and he's dead by morning. Job said it best, naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even though Job had all wealth, when he lost his wealth, he was still concerned that my, my soul is still intact. I did not curse God. I did not blaspheme God. And he said, even if he slays me, yet will I serve him. Because at the end of the day, it isn't, you know, 
your life on earth is only a, uh, is what will take you to heaven if you live for God. This is temporary. Abraham understood that he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. And God promised him everything. He said, look to the north, south, east, west, look every direction. It all belongs to you. But you never see Abraham so desirous of that possession as much as he was desirous of being in God's presence. Uh, on Tuesday night, we had a prayer meeting at church, and uh, Pastor Peters asked me to just say a few words, and I saw something in the Lord's Prayer uh, some time back, and I thought it very appropriate for prayer meeting. Uh, everybody knows the Lord's Prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We all know the prayer, but I had uh, probably last December, I'm reading that prayer, and I see it in a way different than I'd ever seen it before. And so when you consider that prayer now, he doesn't want us to memorize that prayer and repeat, 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 repeat. It's not vain repetition, but it is the model for prayer. And so he's saying, our Father which is in heaven, holy is your name. So our first, when, he, when, they, when they asked Jesus, teach us to pray, his first response was to them, that for your prayer to be effective is you need to understand who I am and you need to honor me. You need to have a relationship with me. You need to understand I'm a holy God and you need to be a holy person. And so he's telling them, you know, uh, this, this is how I want you to begin your prayer. And then he said, uh, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So he's talking about, first, we need to know God, and secondly, he's talking about the place that he has prepared for you and I for eternity. That the ultimate goal of every person in this life is to make heaven our home. That's the ultimate goal. And it isn't, on, it isn't until the third verse, or third verse in that prayer, that he said, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, he's saying, if you, are, if you don't know who I am, if you do not honor and worship me and have relationship with me, if you are not a soul winner, you have no business asking me for bread. Go find your own bread. But all of the rest of that prayer then comes down to the things that we need. But the prerequisite to that is honoring God and living in relationship with him and being a soul winner. Now, how much does God love a soul? Now, we all know the new birth. We all understand that a person must repent, be baptized in Jesus' name, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Yet two times in Luke, uh, in the uh, Gospel of Luke, Jesus said that if, uh, if one sinner repents, all of heaven will rejoice. I mean, he doesn't say anything here about him getting baptized, about him getting the Holy Ghost. He said if they just repent, because of course he understands a person that repents needs to be filled. And if you repent, you are acknowledging that there is a God and that you are accountable to that God. And so he said, all of heaven rejoices 
over that because that person is on their way to heaven. And so he, he's very clear, again, in everything that he does, that souls is what matters at the end of the day. Now, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, God said that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to rain fire and brimstone down upon them. And he said, but will I hide this thing from my servant Abraham? And so he told Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. And Abraham, a child of God, begins to pray. Abraham knows how wicked Sodom and Gomorrah are, but he begins to pray that God would spare them. And so he asks the Lord, if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare that city? And the Lord told him, I will spare it, but there's not 50 righteous. And so uh, Abraham is not, doesn't easily give up. He said, well, what about 45? And the Lord said, there's not 45 righteous. And then Abraham says, what about 40? Not 40. What about 30? There's not 30. What about 20? There's not 20. What about 10? There's not 10. But God is no respecter of persons. And we know from the book of Hebrews, we know from the book of Hebrews that righteous Lot, or Lot was righteous before the Lord. Lot made mistakes, but he was righteous. Now, I'm asked the question, why did Abraham stop praying? What if Abraham would have said, what if there's five? And even if there wasn't, what if there's one? God being no respecter of persons, would he have saved Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of righteous Lot? We need to pray. We need to persevere in prayer. We don't need to give up. When I came to the Lord, I made plenty of mistake. One of my biggest was, uh, you know, I, I would get an argument with my parents. Well, my parents hated the church, so it was a two-way street, but they hated the church. They told me I could go to a Mormon church, the Jehovah Witness, but just don't go to that church. And uh, so, but I would, you know, tell them about the plan of salvation, and my dad would say when I quoted um, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized in Jesus' name, and you'll get the Holy Ghost. Well, it's all the, in the way you interpret it. I said, well, Dad, interpret it for me then. You know, it's pretty clear. Repent, be baptized in Jesus' name, and you will be filled with the Holy Ghost. And so uh, I, uh, I would get in arguments and um, very young and very foolish in the Lord. And I even told them one time they were going to end up in hell because of their hard-heartedness. But as time went on, uh, I taught them Bible study, search for truth. And then I taught them another one. But they were not receptive. Actually, they sat through the Bible study. They didn't, you know, they didn't mind the Bible study, but there was no move to repent, to be baptized. After we went to Nigeria, my brother would go to their house, and he started teaching them Bible study. And they loved it. And he taught, you know, search for truth. And when search for truth was over, they said, well, you know, you, we want you to keep coming back every week. Don't you have something else you can teach us? And so then he started teaching on end time. And then he'd get done with that. And they'd say, well, isn't there any more? And I'd come home from the mission field. And my dad would tell me, 
that, now I hope I can say this here, but that Scott is a pretty darn good teacher. And I'm thinking, well, praise the Lord. I'm happy for Scott. My sister would get so angry, you know, and she'd always ask him, well, what about Jerry? And he'd say, well, that's Scott. <laughs> but God used Scott to win my father. He was 80 years old when he came to the Lord. And uh, we happened to be home when he was baptized. And Brother, Brother Booker baptized him. And uh, it's interesting, all the Bible studies they sat through did not have an overwhelming impact on either my mother or father. But when my sister's husband was on his deathbed, and he was in his 40s and had three children, and it was an awful situation. Brother Booker would go up to pray with my dad, or uh, pray with uh, my brother-in-law uh, regularly, and on the Sunday before he died, he told my sister, he said, I just wish I could go to church one more time. But there was no way that he could go to church one more time. Uh, he was breathing his last, and so Brother Booker, when he heard that, he said, you may not be able to come to church, but we can bring the church to you. And so they brought on that Wednesday night, they brought the church up to his hospital room. They brought a keyboard, they brought instruments. I mean, they had worship, and Brother Booker ministered. You know, it is not just delivering the word, but it's loving people into the kingdom. The entire time that my brother-in-law was in the hospital, my sister never had to cook, never had to get groceries, never had to clean her house. The people in Brother Booker's church, were. she said there was so much food we couldn't eat at all. They came, they supplied every need. And my dad saw that. And he wasn't moved so much by, you know, Jerry's Bible studies and, or even Scott, but he was moved by the love that he saw. And he said, this must be real. So he was baptized in Jesus' name. And, you know, he didn't get the Holy Ghost right away. Uh, uh, my sister, some years had passed. My sister remarried. Uh, moved to Atlanta, and so now my dad, instead of going to Booker's church, was, which was quite a distance from where they lived, started going to Brother Hanthorne's church. And when my dad was on his deathbed, Brother Hanthorne and Brother Booker made repeated visits to his room. And Brother Hanthorne laid hands on him in his bed the Wednesday night before he died, and my dad lifted up his hands and began to speak in other tongues. God is not willing that anyone should perish. That's the will of God. And when you look at what God did regarding Abraham, uh, you know, that God would have intervened on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah if Abraham just would have pressed them a little further, if he would have just said, even for one. In the Old Testament, we talk about Nineveh. You know, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew that God would spare Nineveh, and he also knew that Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, would, the prophets already told him Assyria would come and destroy Israel. 
So he was politically minded. He said, no, I want my people to be saved, not them. But uh, after his, you know, three days in the belly of a fish, he was more than willing to, to preach to Nineveh. These were the most wicked people in the world. They, when they conquered their enemies, they, they cut their heads off and they piled up skulls. There were skull pyramids leading into the gate of their city. Nineveh was called the bloody city. Anybody that came to Nineveh knew, don't mess with these people. And yet God said, you know, if you go preach to them and they repent, I'll save them. And God saved the Ninevites. So there's nobody, there's nobody that God can't save. No matter how much you think that they veered off the track, you know, God will forgive. God's purpose is to seek and to save the lost. If you weren't lost, you wouldn't need a savior. We're lost, we need a savior. And I will say this to you, and in my understanding of the parable of uh, the sower went out to sow, seed falls on four types of ground. Three of them don't produce lasting fruit, but the seed that fell on good ground brought forth fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. I read that. He's not talking to pastors there. He's talking to the church. And he's saying that if you, if, you are, if you are good ground and that seed was planted on you, we'll know because we'll know by your fruit. There, there ought to be a harvest. And I, you know, I told the story about Grandma Vincer, but uh, there was a time at Parkway when Brother Tamil got up and, you know, the Bible study church is how that church was birthed and uh, how it experienced such great revival. And you know, they had, uh, they, he stood up on a Sunday morning and he asked for those that were teaching Bible study to stand up. And there were less than 10 standing and it provoked him. He said, in this size of a church, we only are teaching, you know, whatever it was, 10 Bible studies. He said, now I'm going to ask who will teach a Bible study. And he challenged, and he just stood there, and, you know, well, they know Brother Tamil, praise the Lord. And he just stood there and waited, and, you know, somebody would pop, and he said, now, don't be lying to the Lord. If you're standing, you better have a Bible study. And so one would stand, and another over here, and before long, he had about 50 people standing, and of course, everybody's looking around, who's standing, praise the Lord. And this one young lady got up, and when I saw her stand up, I thought, I don't know about this, you know? I mean, she was so timid. When you went to shake her hand, she, it was like shaking hands with a, you know, a limp fish or something. I mean, she just could, she couldn't look you in the eye. She couldn't talk. And I go, she's going to teach a Bible study. And so as soon as I got in the car, you know, I told Darla, I said, man, she's going to go teach a Bible study. Praise the Lord. And, uh, Really, uh, God rebuked me over the whole thing, but, you know, she got two people that she worked with, two young ladies, and she taught them a Bible study, and both of them were baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost. 
I don't even know how she could really teach a Bible study. But whatever she taught them, it was enough to get them to church, and they were baptized and filled with God's Spirit. Jesus never veered from his mission, and we never need to veer from the mission of the church. We need to be focused on what God has called us to do. And your life, your life will never make sense as long as you are not doing what God created you to do. If you are not in the will of God, if you are not doing what God created you to do, your life will never, ever make sense. Your life will never make sense until you do something that has eternal value. And the only thing that has eternal value is a soul. And I'm going to just finish with one more testimony because it is, to me, a very remarkable testimony. Uh, one of my Bible school students, now in Nigeria, everybody travels, most everybody travels in uh, mass transportation, public transportation. And they have these vans, and they, they totally got them. They're just a, a metal shell, and they bolt benches down in them, and then they pack in as many as they can. No seat belts, no, I mean, just, I mean, it is just get from point A to point B. And they pack them in there. And he's packed in this bus on his way back to school, and uh, there is a lady sitting across the aisle from him. And God tells him, I want you uh, to talk to her. And he, uh, I don't remember what the scripture was, but it was a verse of rebuke out of the book of Isaiah. Now, he doesn't know this woman at all. He's never seen her before. And God is telling him to read her this verse of scripture. And he said, you know, I can't, you know, read a total stranger, a verse of rebuke. And, you know, but... The longer they were in that bus, you know, the more uncomfortable he was, and he knew he had to do what God told him to do. So he, uh, somebody left the, the bench where she was at, and so he shifted over, sat next to her, and read that verse. She immediately started crying, and she said, I'm on my way to Anugu, which is where the Bible school was. I'm on my way to Anugu to get an abortion. And She's crying, and she said, and now you come. And so when she said that, he said, there's no need for you to get an abortion, and began to witness to her about being born again. So instead of going to get an abortion, she came to the Bible school. She was baptized in Jesus' name, and when she came out of the water, she began to speak in other tongues. And five months later, she gave birth to a healthy baby. Amen. God will do exceedingly, abundantly, above what we can even imagine. But souls come first. When that lady got right with God, then she got her baby. Then she got her life turned around. And today, we need to realize that for this crusade, you know, the crusade isn't about you and me. The crusade is about those people that have never heard this truth, those people that have never acted upon the truth that they have heard. But this crusade 
is about bringing people into the house of God that they can have an experience with God that will last not just for time, but for all of eternity. Amen. Nothing in this world lasts. Everything is transitory. But our soul will live for eternity. Amen. And Jesus made it very clear. Our mission, our number one mission, is to seek and save the lost. Amen. Shall we stand this morning? Actually, what I probably should do is have you all sit back down. Everybody sit down. Just getting your exercise, praise the Lord, Sunday morning. Amen. Now, the only people I want to stand, I want the people to stand that are going to invite somebody to that crusade. All right. I want you to have in your mind. Now, I'm going to be like Brother Tamil. Don't be lying and not invite somebody. All right, and you need to invite them probably more than once. And really the best way to get them there is tell them, I will pick you up at your house. Amen. And be there on time. Amen. And, and prepare the person. You know, give them an idea of what, they're, what to expect and share the gospel with them. Amen. And if that happens, if all of our churches do that, we're going to see a great harvest in that crusade. Amen. So let's, uh, we'll open, do you have, do we open the altar? Can we open the altar? Okay. We're going to open the altar to pray. You know, because of COVID, not everybody's opening the altar, so I ask. But uh, when you come and pray, I want you to pray for that person. You know, we always pray for me. But we need to pray for others. And if you're standing because you're going to invite somebody, then you need to pray for that person and ask God to prepare their hearts for God to open the door for you to be able to speak to them. Shall we come this morning? Can use me. I give myself away. I give myself away. Lord, you can use me. Give myself away. Oh, I give myself away so you can use me. Here I am. I say.